just settling myself in here at my extremely uh, complicated, that's an overstatement, but as at my, uh, at my reassuringly cluttered professor's niche here, where there is, I assure you, the paperless office has not yet arrived at the house of Professor Narrett. Um, not even not in any part of his house, uh, just about. Certainly not in his study, that's for sure. Um, I probably will always be a person who is much more comfortable with books and texts that is three-dimensional, books that you hold in your hands or on your lap or on a table and turn the pages, as well as abundant writings, hand writings, jottings, as well as things printed off one of these newfangled machines that are so extremely helpful in some ways. And uh, it's charming. Maybe someday we'll have a, a telescreen and I will get myself out of the picture, although there's, uh, I look just fine, I assure you. And you can see <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm talking about. You know, I usually don't notice it at all. But... Um, now I'm looking at it as if a little bit as if I was one of the audience and I the volume of Tehillim and two volumes of my five volume miniature Chumash and an old and wonderful volume of Perkei Avot uh, my own recent book and, and those are sitting above you know like they say in the restaurant business a bed of lettuce well there is a bed of diverse papers underneath all of those books and surrounding me on both sides, left and right, that uh, challenges the Himalayas. But enough of that. And we are going to think about, think about the Parsha. Um, and in two basic ways, uh, one of them being uh, the Parsha Toldos, mostly and looking back previous a little bit to Parsha Chayasara which tells the end of Avraham's life with its uh, all very very important and and um, events that are all exemplary that teach us basic lessons about how to live Noahide certainly as well as Jews, all people in the world, we should say, because as you folks know, everyone should be uh, a Noahide. The Noahide laws are for everyone and uh, teach us so many, are, are all of the events of Abraham's life are examples of those laws, as well as being remarkably vivid historical events with what we call in English ethical principles, social principles, principles of social and family organization. We're also going to look uh, thematically at the uh, issues that you see listed in lesson number five at the top of the whiteboard. Um, primarily, the first and foremost, number one, Shalom Pua. Nice uh, to have you with us too. And uh, primarily, Havdil or Hivdil as it's uh, uh, sometimes written separation the, maybe uh, after the creation itself and the generosity 
the graciousness and the love, uh, the desire for relationship uh, in the creation, the, the principle of Havdil uh, is, is maybe the very next fundamental one of all and it pervades it pervades the Chumash as you probably know and it certainly comes up again and again and again in the opening parshas of the Chumash as I was go- doing a very quick overview of at the end of class last week and certainly in uh, Parsha um, Vayera and Chayasara as uh, some of the other notes indicate in Parsha Toldos and then it continues Havdil uh, uh, and a close synonym for which Nifa I also saw used just a few times not nearly as common a verb in these uh, chapters winnowing uh, but a, a close synonym like I say and a good one for us to understand probably one that would be very that of course would be infinitely uh, or extremely familiar to the ancient uh, children of Israel, children of Israel in ancient times since they were uh, a primarily agrarian society and uh, probably always meant to be to a large extent an agrarian society not only for reasons of productivity but for all the different kinds of midos the personal qualities and uh, the tenor the nature uh, the quality of their social and political relationships we have to use those words to refer to the way uh, a a culture is structured Uh, being on your land and in your land as part of your identity part of your family part of your understanding of what your family is and what your family's relation to your neighbors are is as you know so so basic to Judaism Uh, so we'll talk about separation and winnowing uh, and as it proceeds through many generations Dorot and civilizations and also the, the principle and the practice of election which these uh, last uh, Parshas uh, have shown us and show us repeatedly is not mainly uh, certainly not simply chronological it doesn't have to do simply with who's born first the the Chumash and the whole Torah teaches us over and over again that while there's uh, great respect that needs to be paid to older people uh, parents but not only parents to older people uh, it's not automatic and uh, it's uh, qualities and uh, personal intention as well as actions count very much um, for all of these for the the principle of uh, of election, uh, which really means being elected to carry out a mission, uh, to having an enormous responsibility thrust upon you. This is the story of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. You know, it's not the idea that uh, Hashem says uh, said these people are so loving, or and these people are so brilliantly discerning in perceiving my presence my being 
through the multiplicity of nature and through the noise of the decrees and the mighty, mighty deeds of people, so to speak, uh, of, of great emperors like Nimrod and uh, the other uh, emperors that we're uh, familiar with, Chedor uh, Laomer uh, from the War of the Kings and so on and so on, the various Avimelechs, which may, may likely be a generic name for the trespassers and invaders, also really a, nick, uh, a title, a, a, a nickname for the uh, people who were in Canaan but did not belong, were not even really Canaanites, were the Philistines, as we call them in English, the Pelishtim, um, that uh, it was not, not just that they could hear the message of Hashem and see his deeds through the noise of, of emperors and their power and the multiplicity of nature as we call it um, but that they that they acted in a way that showed heroism you know and they had increased responsibilities put on them because of their high level of discernment and because of the grateful acknowledgement and praise that was in their hearts and minds and on their tongues when they considered uh, the creation of Hashem and the love uh, and power of Hashem. For their, their, their qualities, this is probably a lesson uh, we need to keep in mind, the greater, and it's, uh, it's the source of many uh, proverbial English expressions. Uh, the greater the qualities, the more responsibilities uh, and the more obligations you have, and prob probably the stricter the standards you are judged by, uh, by many people. This is also part of the story of the, of the uh, vote. Many challenges. Things don't get easier. The uh, challenges continue because we're not, uh, not even they were angels, but rather human beings. Uh, that's part of the measure, that's part of the greatness of their accomplishments. They're not, they're not gods. Um, they are great, great, uh, and that means good and brave and loving human beings. So let me. Uh, back up a minute along one of these two main tracks and back into uh, Parsha um, back into Parsha Chaya Sarah which is so um, remarkable in the way it shifts from summing up the uh, a great life very quickly to immediately uh, preparing for an honorable and memorable heritage, eternal heritage, uh, as part of the caver acquiring a resting place. I, mean, I, re I just gave a functional description of what a, a family tomb complex really was and meant. It's, it's not just to respectfully and hygienically uh, inter the human 
the mortal remains, as we say, of a person, but it's part of establishing a, a part of the family's heritage and remembrance of where it comes from. And then, of course, we go uh, right from that to uh, Abraham's uh, sending, looking to the future more explicitly, sending his servant, his most his steward, Eliezer, uh, back to Haran to get a suitable wife for his and Sarah's uh, only beloved son, uh, Yitzchak, as Hashem and his angel uh, say repeatedly, your one, your only son that you love, Yitzchak. Uh, there's a very nice midrash on that, but I don't want to get um, too far off the track right here. So we see a whole series uh, of events, and then we see Eliezer's very carefully careful process of reflection and selection as well as seeing his faithfulness um, that, as well as seeing that his obedience to his master is not only loving and complete but that it's, it's not rote, it's not robotic it's perceptive it's personalized and it's active he, he needs to activate the conditions he needs to prepare himself prepare himself to perceive who who might be the right wife for Abraham's son Yitzhak and to prepare himself to recognize her to respond to her and then to recount his meeting with her in such a way that people on a much lower level than he is can also feel that it, this is absolute this is from Hashem it's providence and whatever we might wish it's not for us to say yes or no as we heard believe it or not from Lavan uh, and his relatives himself but it's from Hashem so Eliezer's so Eliezer's careful presentation of the scenario that Abraham had laid out for him was uh, shows that obedience even from such a great servant can't simply be blind obedience what an important principle uh, that is uh, in terms of our everyday life in terms of our professional lives and certainly is probably a principle that needs to be uh, embedded in law a legal doctrine legal precedence and the, the inquiry into the facts of a case of any judge who really wants to do um, justice that that proper obedience cannot simply be blind anyway um, to go back we have um, to go back a little bit uh, to stay on this uh, in terms of Noahide laws Abraham's dealing with Ephron the Hittite in acquiring uh, the caver at Marat Hamakpela and the field of Mamre which is Hebron as it states eventually in the Parsha the law, the long back and forth between them from last week's Parsha is a good demonstration of the of how important the legal aspect of, of taking a uh, formal aspect 
to personal dealings, um, not because you like to accumulate uh, documents or uh, because you like to throw want to throw something in someone's face, but that the one of the lessons that the challenges, the challenging lives of the Avot, the fathers of Israel, teach us is that for whatever reason, and there are probably lots, but for, for many reasons, the people that surround the Jewish people and the fathers of the Jewish people are always trying to take away their heritage. It's the oldest story in the book, almost uh, literally. Or is it, Once you get into the life of Abraham and uh, he digs the wells and uh, the servants of Avimelech, the Pelishtim, who was himself an invader in Canaan, as the sages and the Talmudic commentators and later commentators teach us, because after all, Pelishtim was from Pathros, which is one of many Hebrew terms that the Greeks themselves borrowed many centuries later. Pathros, to pronounce it the Greek way, is uh, which we see in uh, in Parsha Noach, chapter 10, I think it is, is uh, exactly the word that the Greeks picked up to refer to the region, geographic region around the Nile Delta. And this is one of the places where the police team came out of Mitzrayim, and eventually they spread out over uh, southwestern, southwesterly parts of the land of Canaan, a relative of theirs, and all of whose land is, of course, part of the eternal heritage of Israel. So from the time that Avraham, the wells that Avraham dug were stopped up by the servants of Avimelech, and you see in this week's Parsha, Toadot, the same thing happened to Yitzchak with Avimelech's servants, and uh, Avraham and Yitzchak both had to make covenants with these people, these um, thieves. Okay, I won't look for a euphemism. And we know what the laws of Noah, the laws of all mankind, say about stealing. And uh, certainly many Torah laws, many laws, uh, mitzvot, in the, given to the Jewish people are part of the, part of the principles of uh, having courts of justice is to deal with and to hopefully to preempt, to pre pre prevent stealing. Well, that's what the Avos had to deal with from the beginning. Stealing in the sense that it's forbidden in the uh, Aseras Dibrot, in the Ten Commandments, where the sages say this is really about kidnapping, stealing a person, that we saw that with the, the four kings and emperors who took Lot and his family to extort, they thought, hot money from Avraham. Does this sound timely and familiar? Unfortunately, uh, extort uh, payments of money for the hostages they'd taken. We see it with Avimelech and his servants. But to come right back, what is the connection between uh, how Avraham and Yitzhak dealt with this and the way Avraham dealt with Ephron the Hittite in acquiring uh, the cave of Machpelah in the field of Mamre as a heritage. Uh, fair dealing and just dealing 
it also has to do you know with remembrance with making the the principles of having a heritage and an inheritance and the principle the personal quality the habit of mind and character of remembrance uh, is uh, are both of them very central to Judaism and the Jewish approach uh, to the world the Jewish way of being in the world to have a heritage is to have a body of fixed a code of conduct also to have a physical heritage also to have a place to honorably repose your deceased and the deceased it's not only to do them honor and to be hygienic it's because to help you remember where you come from and where you're going in your life uh, and after your life and all of these things have to from the, uh, the, the, the well of the oath or the oath by the well that gave the, the city first the, the little village then a town then the modern city of Be'er Sheva the well of the oath or the vow that gave it its name to the acquisition by Avraham from Ephron of uh, Ma'arat HaMakpela to Yitzhak's having yet again with the Pelishtim to uh, uh, make another covenant by Be'er Sheva and the other wells that his servants dug and uh, all demonstrates the importance of living a life with formal uh, agreements that are hopefully uh, they're a part of heritage they're, they're a, a memorial in their own way they're a tziyun uh, a memorial and that hopefully give people a sense of dignity and honor reminds them of covenants their own representatives or forefathers uh, ancestors have made and uh, keeps them from doing what many people have a natural tendency to do which is take things that don't belong to them uh, and that's very bad because when you have a lot of people who do that you don't have a society you don't have a civilization uh, you cannot have faith in each other and uh, a very terrible thing and probably one of the reasons uh, the eternal one gave the mitzvah of establishing courts of justice so much pr uh, prominence that it's one of the seven laws of Noah for all mankind uh, because it reinforces you have to, you know you know the, the uh, it's kind of a legal expression really full faith and credit um, people have to be in the habit of giving each other's word full faith and credit so you can live at peace and also it's a reflection of and a reinforcement to ideally the faith and the full faith and credit uh, the bitachon in this context that hopefully can inform a human being's feelings about Hashem and his or her place in the world a place that in a way is secure and seen and understood like uh, like the most uh, far-seeing of parents oversees the life of a beloved uh, child and of course this lesson of uh, of 
making a contract and having a contract and of the relationship between formal dealing, full and open dealing, transparent is, is a word something in, uh, that's come into vogue in the last 10 years. Transparency, meaning your, your agreements, your openness, your, the way, your arrangements, the way you deal, deal with money or employees and so on should be fully transparent to anyone who is in any way involved or affected by the dealings uh, is certainly part of the story. It's a key part of the story of Yaakov and his twin brother Esau, which, which uh, ties in the very important part that really precedes the explosive part of the action, uh, but without which the entire relationship, the nature of Esau uh, and the nature of Yaakov, the nature of the, the two brothers and what subsequently happens between them cannot be understood uh, without that idea of being uh, transparent, of being formal about re uh, agreements, especially ones that pertain to one's uh, heritage one's remembrance and one's ancestors. You see how all of these events in these Parshas, all of these events cluster around a few of the same principles that, that penetrate like a root, penetrate all of these activities and connect them together. Not only, it's not just a sequence of events, but into a thematic uh, unity that reflects the unity of the Creator and the unity of uh, His Torah. You see, it's, so it's very, very integral around these, uh, these principles, several of which I've put on the whiteboard and that I'm uh, in the process of elaborating, doing my best to elaborate for you. So we have this starting on the, you know, focusing on the com commandment of having courts of justice and all of the, the public witness and repetition and making, uh, making sure that the people or person with whom you're dealing understands completely what you are asking for, what you are asking of them, what they are offering to you, that's certainly very important in the story of Yaakov and Esau, something that's often glossed over, sometimes purposely, making very completely as, as clear as you can that they themselves understand the implications of what they're doing, so that the uh, the Brit, the covenant of any kind, uh, can be true and truly binding and no one can come later and say there's no agreement here, which really gives you in your social and cultural relations, it puts you back into olam tohu. That's one of the reasons I put that up on the whiteboard. It takes you, takes you right back into a human version of the chaos that preceded creation. And this is really, this relates, uh, is another way of looking at the principle of Havdil and Nifa or winnowing 
looking at the relation between those principles and the principles of olam tohu uh, and how you get out of that on a human level through your own efforts like those of Abraham of many different kinds we've been talking about like that of Eliezer the enormous amount of effort insight uh, uh, understanding he had to use and to raise human beings into uh, olam hatikun into a rectified world into a world that is just and wholesome and intact uh, in a way that reflects the completion the perfection the fullness of the world created by Hashem and that he wants always to be uh, as shalem as integral, unified, complete, whole, and perfect as uh, is possible. And that's why the uh, place uh, where he chose to rest his name and presence upon has in it, in the latter part of it, has the word shalem in it. Uh, we'll talk about that more at some point. Yerushalayim is of course what I'm talking about and and you can get into that that's certainly mentioned uh, in the Akedah which uh, I mentioned just briefly before is one of the many challenges one of the, perhaps the greatest uh, the tenth uh, the, the last and the greatest uh, virtually impossible challenge which Avraham had to somehow surmount to demonstrate that he could be the cornerstone for all human beings that would come to live on the earth for all time that his chesed could be matched by a self-restraint by a strength in the self of self-restraint and obedience that uh, because it's the Hashem in this case and because the command was absolute he had to follow through notwithstanding uh, it didn't really make sense completely or certainly was against everything that was best in his nature that is the love and all the bravery the courage we talked about that came out of his uh, nature but one of the reasons and because that was the place where he demonstrated that he was Shalem, completely whole and integral in his relationship to Hashem and in his trust that if Hashem said I am going to bring you uh, numberless descendants out of your son your only son Yitzchak that you love that somehow this commandment to that for Yitzchak to be a sacrifice would not contradict that and lo and behold that's uh, exactly Hashem revealed that was all I wanted to see no way that I was ever going to allow you uh, to do that so that uh, Abraham was Shalem there Yitzchak who after all although Abraham refers to him lovingly as my son 
and my lad. Some of us refer to our grown children from time to time as my son or my daughter, even if they have children themselves and are certainly not lads or youths, and are certainly not by our standard of years anymore. Yitzhak also uh, was Shalem in his complete bitachon, in his uh, father and in Hashem, uh, and in the promise which the sages uh, and uh, the, in the Talmud, the Mishnaic sages and the uh, writers of the Gemara, the Aramaic commentaries on the Mishnah uh, that are all gathered in later commentators, the greats, they talk about how Yitzhak must have been aware that the uh, covenant had been would be uh, completed through him and his descendants, that he and Eliezer certainly knew this, and uh, Abraham, uh, and so this was part of their, part of what they had to overcome in going up to Mount Moriah, uh, which is uh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, as we say uh, today. So uh, there's the, the talking mostly about the, uh, the importance of having a complete and open understanding, and we saw how how much Avraham had to work to get that out of Ephron the Hittite, who wanted to say to show how generous he was. Here, bury your dead. Aren't you a prince of God in our midst? And you know, while it may not have been his main intention, it sounds an awful lot like so many of the offers, the the great offers that have been made to the Jewish people from time immemorial. Uh, come on, just be one of us. We have so much respect for you. Just blend in, blend in take your daughters from our daughters, and we'll give you, and, and uh, for your sons, and, and we'll take your daughters for our sons, and there's abundant grazing land. This is what we saw, this is what we see in uh, chapter 34. Uh, I think it is in uh, Parsha Shelach from Shechem, the whole uh, episode with uh, Shechem and Hamor and Dina and uh, what Shimeon and Levi decide must be done in order for uh, for Israel as it just newly been named by Hashem, for Israel to be Shalem. Uh, seems to be a keynote of our discussion tonight and that's that's good. That's appropriate. Um, uh, it should always be a keynote of any extended discussion of Israel, the people, the land, and the Torah that teaches their history, their, co their way of life, and so on, because it's the foundational principle not only for them and their, all their human deeds, but for the whole universe, as we said. And uh, looking ahead, uh, in a way, if you look at point five there under lesson number five at the top of the whiteboard, you'll see that I've already, in a way, run through a good part of this list, given a first run through. As you see where I say, Kedem, um, the, the root of the 
that was appropriated by a certain political party in Israel that came into existence out of nowhere, certainly not Minkedem, uh, uh, not from the origins. Uh, Hebrew is, of course, um, the most profound language as well as probably the most ancient language, certainly the most ancient language by far that's still in use on the planet today. But since it's the pure and holy tongue, the Lashon HaKodesh, with which the Eternal One spoke the universe into being, out of which he constructed the universe. Literally, it is the DNA of the universe. We would expect to have that its words virtually every one to be very, very profound. And both the words Kedem and Shlem Yud, uh, the adjective of uh, Shalem, or, uh, or it's actually a noun of condition made out of a, uh, um, a, an adjective. Wholeness, made out of whole or intact or complete, etc. Kedem means from to go forward from your origins in, in a way in, in English it's almost it seems to split into two contrasting uh, even opposing concepts going forward because in English to be progressive especially politically and culturally this is the curse of western civilization this is a large part of what my next book is about so having been studying western civilization since college and even before you know, I've and studying a lot of, especially focusing on the Romantic period when I was in graduate school, which was the late 18th and 19th century, the uh, end of the Enlightenment and its immediate uh, consequences, which really have been playing themselves out throughout the 20th century. We know that the term progressive is extremely positive in its connotations, and all the people who think they're extremely sophisticated and sensitive and tolerant and very, very well informed have loved to refer to themselves as progressive and they're progressives and anything that is progressive is ipso facto, pardon me for slipping into the language of Esau uh, is by its nature is thus uh, a good thing we should all be progressive God forbid, you can tell I'm being facetious and but in uh, Hebrew, the idea of going forward includes the same word, the, the kadima, which means forward with me, actually means, if you study the history of kedem, if you just look, look in a dictionary, Hebrew dictionary, look at the root, you'll see it means to go forward from your origins you know, from implicitly from the past. In order to go forward, you have to bring your heritage with you. You have to remember. You can't stop thinking about, uh, uh, you can't say yesterday's gone and just keep thinking about tomorrow like, like the Clinton's theme song was. You stop, if, if you believe that yesterday's gone, you're rootless. You've cut yourself off from your roots like all the theology of the pagan Greeks emphasizes and also Egypt and uh, you wind up with a dead end uh, civilization that can only live by oppressing, uh, enslaving and stealing st 
stealing from other people, stealing their property, stealing their money, stealing their children. So uh, history uh, and remembrance go together, remembering your origins, remembering your heritage, and especially when it's a covenant like the one Avraham had uh, promised to him, expanded, promised again, elaborated again. You know, I'm thinking uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, the Brit Haaretz, Genesis 17, the Brit Mila, um, Genesis, uh, is it 21 or 22 at the end of the Akedah in uh, Parsha Vaera? And he says, because you have done this, you know, you will be, not only will your offspring be as numberless as the sands of the sea and you will inherit all this land, but you will never be cut off. Your descendants through Yitzchak will never be cut off. So we see um, uh, the, this idea, the heritage that the Jewish people were carrying for the whole world contains uh, the idea of going forward but carrying your your history, your roots, your origins, always first and foremost with you. And while the modern world, whether it's political psychobabble or pop psychology psychobabble um, and refers to your past as baggage, that, you know, what are you still thinking about that? Get on with your life. You know, hopefully <laughs> you haven't heard that uh, in a important situation from any caregiver or legal beagle. You know, it's one of the signs at the ends of days that uh, the courts, the places that should dispense justice, uh, dispense injustice and they make up the laws according to the psychobabble and the trendy politics of, of our day, which happen to be progressive, that is to say, which happen to be dead end. So we get... Uh, we get coming out of the mouths of many, many, many lawyers and judges in this country and many other uh, countries and in the forums of international opinion and their laws, international law, we get uh, injustice rather than justice making the importance of the study of the Torah and the importance of the attachment of Noahites to the Torah and to Jewish people more and more important every single day as we go forward through this terrible period of darkness and, uh, and, and light when the klipot are at their thickest and are in a way uh, almost like a star that has expended its Hydrogen and is collapsing. You know what they call uh, red giants and so a star at the end of its life, and it's imploding because the hydrogen bonds are collapsed. It's used up its hydrogen, so the the energy it cannot generate more energy. Uh, it cannot generate more energy than uh, the gravitational pull of its material, and it collapses in on itself. That's what's happening to our culture. There it is in a nutshell and uh, a great, uh, well, another metaphor from Professor Narrett. And as you know, if you know just a little bit of modern astrophysics, as a star implodes, not only do you get every conceivable element uh, 
under the sun and within the sun, I guess you could say, but you also get eventually, you get an increasing density, dense, denser and denser and le more darkness, less light, more darkness and coldness, less heat, eventually you get an explosion and uh, a brief moment of light and then you get a new order. And uh, what we are at least the promise of Hashem is that while the nations think they're going to put in their own godless new world order in which all the gods of the peoples are going to be the gods of this world, uh, to use an English expression, um, Hashem's idea of an enduring world order is a very different one. It's one laid out repeatedly in Chumash and of course elaborated by the prophets and discussed very beautifully in, uh, for example, in Talmudic Tractate Sanhedrin. Uh, if you ever want to study that, it's certainly fascinating and important, mostly chapters 94a through most of the discussion runs through chapter 98b, which is uh, the discussion about what exactly is the end of days, how, what are the signs, what is human kinds of human behavior do we see, what happens to society, what happens to the weather, what happens to the growing cycle, and how will we know when it's time for Barnofli, uh, a nickname, one of several nicknames for the Mashiach, uh, to arrive. The nickname, just to fill or finish this uh, digression, because that means the fallen one, and it's a reference to the Mashiach will raise up the fallen booth of David, and uh, with a subsidiary reference to the festival of Sukkot, the festival of joy, which certainly will be not just the festival, but the condition uh, of all of us when we see the, uh, the order, the Seder of Hashem and the Shlemut of uh, Yisrael Shlema and therefore of the entire world instead of this uh, nightmare new world order that in, by many different road maps the powers are trying to drive us all down. Okay, so uh, history and remembrance uh, are crucial to the, these laws uh, of Noah. I've talked mostly about the uh, commandment to establish courts of justice and the various kinds of justice, particularly transparency and understanding by both parties in their dealings, public witness, uh, and how this is so, this is this is not just law. You know, in English, following the Greeks especially, everything is categorized very neatly. And there are some advantages to that. You have, you have legal matters, you have economic matters, you have agricultural matters, you have electrical engineering, you have mechanical engineering, you have military matters, you have political structure, uh, you have kinship laws, and they're all in their separate uh, files on your computer or in your file system in your drawers and that there's a specialist for each one. But uh, And that has some advantages in developing the details and nuances and even the skill in using agriculture, agricultural implements, agricultural fertilizer, etc. through all of those different fields of study. Judaism has a totally different approach as you probably know 
and I periodically mention, everything is unified. It, it is all connected. It makes it, you have to, and as a result, you have to talk when you, when you discuss it and explain it. You have to take a different style of what the Greeks and Romans and all the European tongues would call rhetoric. But in Hebrew, it's just uh, it's explication, you know. It's uh, it's uh, Talmudic explication. It's it, it's it's Mishnah. It's accounting and records. It's studying. It's uh, it's studying in every sense of the word. We're studying all the time and understanding the connections between things, the context. Everything is uh, everything is whole everything, the roots are all interpenetrated. You can't damage, you can't take away Lebanon, the Lebanon, never should just say Lebanon, you can never take away uh, Ha-Lebanon from Israel and expect there to be peace in Israel, in the region, or in the world, because the Lebanon in its entirety is part of Yisrael Shlem. It's part of the, the Brit Haaretz. That's the end of the story. The fact that we're the entire world, everyone who thinks they're intelligent, is, talks with uh, ad nauseum about Lebanon and political develops in Lebanon. It's, it's really, it's all details. The flaw is very simple. It's a flaw. It's a, it's a, it's a flaw. Period. It's not wholeness. Lebanon should have been part of Israel. This was one of the many grave sins of Great Britain who had the power, wasn't given the power to do this. The end of World War I, and they did the very opposite. And now in every place where, it, where Hashem said the children of Israel should be, and they're not, every single one of those places is not only filled with disorder, it's filled, and not only filled with terrible kinds of violence, the most savage, animalistic kinds of violence that you see only wild beasts. I mean, where do you see human beings, even the bitterest enemies, dismembering and eviscerating civilians of the, of the people with whom they're enemies? You know, this is, you don't see this in other parts of the world. This is, we know that this is a commonplace in the, all of the areas around Israel where Israel should be and Israel is not. We see Olam Tohu we see the reign of uh, Yishmael supported and uh, supported in many, many ways by Esau. This is something we'll talk about in the next course. It's, it's an enormously important subject. It reinforces everything we're saying in this first uh, course, the challenge of the Eternal One, but it's such a large subject and has its own a terminological and historical frame of reference, so we'll just invoke, uh, invoke it here and then leave it aside. But Israel, this comes back to Kedem, truly understanding Kedem, its relationship to Shalem, and the, the fact that Shalem includes history, remembrance, heritage, just dealing, and also includes not tearing things apart not tearing apart the land, not stopping up somebody's wells, not tearing someone's da virgin daughter, and then saying you're going to make it okay by having a swap, etc., etc., etc. Let's move ahead because our time uh, is limited uh, for the course. Fortunately, we have uh, 
Hopefully we have lots and lots of time together. We should be blessed that way. It's so beautiful to talk words of Torah, uh, at least to strive to talk uh, words of Torah and, and expand understanding of Torah and at least share a love of Torah. What a great and beautiful thing that is to do. Uh, separation. Uh, Nifa. Avdil. Uh, we see it over and over again. Avraham from his father's household and his native land. Avraham and his nephew Lot. Sarah and Hagar. Uh, Yishmael and Yitzhak. Um, Rivka and Lavan. And uh, how important that was. And Eliezer's role in teasing out, you know, think of the word physical, like teasing a strand, this one strand that you want to get out of this big tangled ball of twine, teasing out the strand of purity, light, and chesed out of that, you know, the, the mixture of many qualities, many of which were bad, from the family of Betul and uh, and Lavan. Uh, but let's go right to Yitz, Yaakov and, and Esau and how they impact this beautiful uh, man, Yitzchak, this master of Gevura, of strength in the self of self-mastery, self-discipline, and uh, almost superhuman self-restraint. I mean, the way he dealt with Abimelech and the Polishtim uh, having to redo what his uh, his extremely uh, saintly father had done to make another agreement and to have them stop, you know, uh, and to have them cease and desist from clogging up the wells, the wells that are, of course, not only water but wells of inspiration and wells of Torah. Consider who's digging them and for whose nurturance they are and doing so much to avoid war. Does this sound familiar? Going, okay, you're going to steal that one from me. I'll go dig another one here. Behold, it's filled with water. Oh, they suddenly discover it's ours. Okay, I'll go, I'll leave, and I'll dig another one over here. They left me alone for a, for a few years. Baruch Hashem. I'll call it Rechovot, which uh, maybe some of you know is the opposite of Chorovot, one of the synonyms for destruction. Spaciousness is the opposite of destruction, which is a synonym for olam tohu. Certainly, that's the world of the Polishtim, and that is also the world of uh, Asaph. Uh, this is a subject we're going to have to continue next week, I can see, but we'll start it. It starts, how does it start? I wish we were all sitting together in a class and I could look into your faces and I know several of you would have your hands up and I'd say, go ahead Eileen or go ahead Pua or Alan or whoever else is there and you'd start uh, talking about where uh, without going all the way back to the Kedem all the way back to uh, Terach and Nahor and Abraham, and Abraham or even further back to Noah and Shem and Aver and then Abraham but to go back to Eliezer's selection of Yitzhak and Yitzhak's uh, betrothal and then wedding of Rivka and he loved her 
what a beautiful discussion of that. You know, it's a beautiful, what a beautiful, what beautiful character or traits, what beautiful mido these people, Yitzhak and Rivka. No, no wonder Hashem has them selected out, and no wonder uh, they and their descendants had all these challenges to deal with. We're about to, to discuss, begin discussing one of the greatest ones. What beautiful people! But there's a this wonderful discussion that convened by the Ramban of all the sages who had gone before him and his contemporaries, and the, what exactly is this distinction? and the sequencing of betrothal and marriage and where does love enter into it you know for Jews and for Noahides and what is considered betrothal and marriage for Noahides as opposed to you know when the Torah is given in Jews fascinating beautiful discussion anyway Yitzhak and Rivka they love each other but this other principle Noahide principle that, and then core principle that we've been talking about since the very first class has to do with our relationship to Hashem the, the, the relationship He wants us to have with Him the response that He hopes and wants and gives us the freedom to have with Him which is a loving one but also one of supplication which really follows from recognizing who he is I mean you're not going to go like a lot of the pagans you know, human, human, humankind has made some progress nearly every civilization they're not turning to stones and trees anymore instead they're turning to the United Nations isn't that great well you know they, they turn to Hashem because who else but the eternal one can you supplicate you know if all measures have failed and you're still you know, 23 years have passed and you have not been able to conceive. So, blessing the divine name and, you know, not, not using other names as divine. Hashem, you know, those are really, to me, they're two sides of a coin and Rivka turns to Hashem. This is, you know, in an approximate way, in a close way, this is where it begins. And she says, what is, why am I having this commotion? in my Vetem, uh, you know, why, why this turbulence, in the, why is thus? Why am I like this? And uh, Hashem speaks to her. This is uh, another, the, the Torah, as you know, it's not a newspaper, and it's not a textbook. It's not, it's not an explanation, or it's not a uh, discursive study of, of cultural history. It's, uh, Hashem, you know, the fact that Hashem answers her and lays it all out succinctly before her is uh, that's the, the, you get the key story, and the imp the implication of the fact that that the eternal one, the Ein Sof, the the the, the infinite Hashem answers her, speaks to the level that Rivka is at as a human being, the the level that uh, the great Eliezer recognized when she ran. She not only came to bring him water, but she ran to serve him and ran to to give all of his camels drink and to assure him of their hospitality so this is the same Rivka of course we recognize this is her and Hashem says well there are two nations in your womb and they're very different you know the younger the, old, the older will serve the younger this is uh, a close paraphrase this is the way it is so she knows from the beginning 
It's a very important part of the story. Rivka is obviously a prophetess, uh, and not only a very, very great woman and person of chesed, but also enormous bina, uh, understanding. And also she turns to the right place, the way Avraham and Eliezer. There's the other, you know, the great example. Uh, Eliezer, like his master Avraham, who had faith in Hashem and loved Hashem and risked his life for Hashem many times. Eliezer prays to Hashem like Rivka. Hashem wants to be supplicated. So this is the Prashiyat. Two different sons. One is a perfect man, Ishtam. Yes, and after tonight's discussion, you can understand why, in what you can understand the context in which it's appropriate to translate Ishtam, literally, a perfect man as a wholesome man but really not a simple man as they sometimes translate it in English although you could make that connection too wholesome in the sense of Yaakov was shalem he is intact complete pure wholehearted all of those things he is Tom um, uh, wholesome in that full sense doesn't just mean he washes his hands and never uses dirty words, you know? He's, uh, and so on. Now you can we understand that. We get into that whole situation that in detail we'll have to discuss next week, but where Yitzhak's eyesight is failing, he, his, he's 123, he's within five years of the age at which his beloved mother, sorrow for which we, we know he grieved, there's a very explicit hint in the text uh, that he grieved for that Rivka consoled. He was consoled for Sarah, for his death, uh, for his sorrow over Sarah by Rivka, uh, um, by, by the grace and blessing she brought to him. Um, that, um, so Yitzhak was within uh, five years of the age at which his beloved mother passed away, he was afraid. I don't, I'm not sure. My life is not in my hands. Hashem has made a promise, but it's a, my, everything is in his hands. So let me give out my blessing. And uh, how could it be? There are many, many different discussions of why would it be uh, Yitzhak wanted to uh, bless Esau. There are lots of good reasons. Just, just, just to name one, that's often discussed is he wanted to bring he was going to strive to the very end just the way Abraham pushed ahead to the very end to Mount Moriah and even drew the knife and had, it, had the knife raised could hardly imagine it before the, the voice came out from Shemayim and stopped him and uh, Yitzhak was willing to go to the mat we say in modern American English to bring out the light from Esau, from inside Esau, and bring him in the path of Teshuvah and make him worthy of his older cousin Leah, whom many commentators say really should if Esau had been able to do Teshuvah and, and to, to bring out, to master his appetites, his crudeness, his coarseness, his lack of courtesy you can look at if you look very closely if you know just a little bit of Hebrew or if you have a Hebrew and English uh, Chumash 
which is so valuable. That's why I mentioned it last week. Look at the way when Yaakov comes in, even disguised, and yes, he is in some respect, he's deceiving his father, although also the way he answers him is equivocal. Equivocal is not nice, but he's, he's struggling. He has, to, he has to obey his mother, and his mother has the word from Hashem. But that, that's not all. But, but to compare the way he addresses Yitzhak and says, rise, please sit up, and eat now and if you look at the Hebrew as well as the English and you look at the Hebrew when Esau comes in and is much more brusque with his father and says come on now eat and give me your blessing it's not as we would say it's not polite it's not respectful it's right there on the surface the Peshat level of the text you know you barely even need to go to, to it's, it's right there on the Peshat these are different human beings but we know even before that whole scene that we'll talk about next week because now I'm going to finish up we come back to where we start to what I was talking to you about most of the first third of our class today the, the in, extremely important commandment of establishing courts of justice the one explicitly positive mitzvah of the seven given to the B'nai Noah courts of justice with all the uh, criteria that go along with having a, a court that's genuinely of justice and not injustice the openness of a covenant and understanding transparency of understanding agreements that you make because agreements that you make go to the core of who you are and by going to the core of who you are they go to the core of your heritage because you're not just yourself in your the 30 years or 55 years or 85 years or 120 years that you live you are also your parents and your grandparents and their parents and your, your children and your children's children that's the responsibility we all carry when we remind ourselves of that we it helps us to appreciate the enormous responsibility um, Hashem has given us in our freedom and the enormous, the great necessity for mindfulness and insight and Torah study as a result so we can as best as possible carry out our responsibility. Well, I would call on you now because you'll all have your hands up and I'd say, how is it that we didn't even need Hashem's straight declaration to Rivka, the older one is going to serve the younger I'm telling you the contention in the womb and there's going to be content you have two different nations yes not only are they brothers not only are they both the children of you and Yitzhak they're twins but they are different as different can be we have that but even without that we see that Rivka has to arrange things the way she does in the next Parsha because it's plain the different these are two different people even without that clear direct message from Hashem Asaph comes in from hunting you know the famous episode I'm starving I'm starving pour, pour some of that red red pour the red red into me you know they usually translate it red stuff in the better of translations but he doesn't he really doesn't say red it doesn't like say a, a dumb a dumb davar or something that red thing instead of give me some stew quick he just says red red 
one of the reasons that he's the main reason he got the nickname Edom. And the commentators explain, you know, that this is a nickname. The, te- the plain Peshat meaning of the text makes that clear. This is how he got, one of the, m- the main way he got his nickname, so they called him Edom. People made fun of him. He said, why? Because he was, so, he got, think about this, really, this is simple. You don't need to be a, a you don't need to start parsing words and letters and, and doing anagrams, or, or you don't have to ask Rashi or Rambam or Professor Narit. Think of this guy. Instead of he can't wait half an hour, how long does it take to finish a pot of stew? Half an hour? And he can't wait though. He can't wait. He can't wait a minute. Pour it into me now. It's just it's red. You know, it's not it's not even stew, it's not even stuff. Just pour it into me now. I'm dying. Is this an adult? Is this even a decently raised seven year old? And what? And you'd say, well, he's starving. Come on, give the guy a break. What about all this chesed? What about ahava? You know, generosity, please. He's a human being. He's starving. But what is he willing to do? He says, what use is a birthright to me? Look at item five there under lesson number five. History, remembrance, kedem, your origins. How do you go forward? Only with and from your origins. Think of everything Avraham put into getting Ma'arat Hamakpela as a heritage for him and his family and his descendants, um, and that whole long as, as part of his covenant. Yeah, the same thing is repeated in small with Yaakov and Esau. Esau thro- throws away his covenant, and it's not just like any covenant. It's not even just you know a beautiful five-story house in uh, Wellfleet or something, uh, an $800,000, 4,000-square-foot house or something. He throws away his birthright, the birthright of Yitzhak and Avraham. It's right there. So Esau spurned his birthright because he couldn't wait a few minutes for the stew. But also, just as importantly, look at Yaakov. Of course Yaakov wants the birthright. Wouldn't you? want the birthright of Avraham and Yitzhak if an op- you had a chance to pick it up but instead of just grabbing it like Avraham instead of just as soon as Ephraim said my lord you are a prince of God in our midst what is it take it take it please bury your dead from before us you know and uh, there's interesting discussions of that too which you can maybe pick up some of Ephraim's meaning but uh Please, but Abraham said, no, no, only I'm going to purchase it from you, transparent to this is formal. There's going to be no doubt that the heritage of this field, the entire cave, the whole area is mine as an eternal birthright. Same thing with Yaakov. He says, no, sell it to me. Don't just throw it down. He says, oh, what? You know the rest. Esau, even when he gave, Yaakov gave him a chance to reflect, to think, to be, to make it formal, Esau said, "Sure, pour it into me. It's no good to me. I'm going to die anyway." It, look, didn't Avraham die? And if you figure out the dates, uh, sure enough, it seems it's right about the time that Avraham died. So this very well may have been a uh, a funeral um, meal, and uh, it's often interpreted that way. In any way, in any case, so. Esau spurns the birthright 
the word of Hashem is proved but how it's not proved by Hashem being a puppet master like with the idol, idol worshippers and coming down like hell, like uh, Aphrodite in the Iliad in book 5 of the Iliad uh, Paris of Troy who chose Aphrodite as his own personal goddess is having a duel with Menelaus the king of Sparta whose wife uh, absconded with him Helen of Troy and of course Menelaus who's a greater warrior because Paris is just a playboy is, be, is about to kill him has, has pulled his helmet down around his neck is choking him is about to split him in two with his sword and Aphrodite reaches down off of Mount Olympus and physically plucks Paris off the battlefield um, instantaneously bathes him and perfumes him and puts him in bed with a silk robe and brings Helen of Troy to him that's the Greeks and their gods from whom you know philosophers are constantly telling us all philosophy all love of knowledge begins with the Greeks dear me well Hashem does not deal that way with his creatures uh, Esau uh, had it showed what he was and Yaakov showed how much Esau showed his contempt for the birthright he showed his lack of gavura. he's a man of the of sword of violence of hunting but he has no self-restraint. He's what in the Western tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition, is a very recognizable type in literature and political philosophy. This is the man of appetite who cannot rule anyone else securely ever despite the fact that they're always violent, powerful, and seeking powerful because they cannot rule themselves. Which is exactly what Yaakov, Jacob, excels in to the extent that he obeyed his mother he knew the birthright was his formally and by right Esau sold it to him on reflection and his mother told him what was going on and the plain sequence of the Torah at the very least suggests very clearly that the reason Yitzhak eyesight, Yitzhak's eyesight was sailing, failing was because of the abominable practices and behavior of Aesop's wives. Who had Aesop already married? And I know your hands would all be up right now. Canaanite women. Now, you think about that, you know, someone who really doesn't know the text says, well, I mean, isn't that who was around? What's so strange about that? Yeah, but think for a minute. He grew up with his mother and father. Where had his mother come from? and he must have known that story he must have heard it a few times from the dis other disciples of Abraham and Sarah and Yitzhak and Rivka no by no means you must not take a wife for my son from these Canaanite women no so what does he do he's got to have women just like he's got to have this too he takes wives and Rivka says what, what is my life my life is worth nothing to me if Yaakov should take a wife like Esau did from these children of Chet, from these Canaanite women. And later we see him compound. He takes, he says, oh, gee, maybe they didn't want me to marry Canaanites? Okay, I'll marry some Egyptian women. So he marries Bazamat and uh, Yehuda, the other the wives from Egypt. And right there, by the way, I'll close with this note. We've gone over a bit. But right there you see in uh, chapters 26 and 27 in Parsha Toledot you see the biogenetic or and also the cultural 
in terms of personal qualities, origin of the alliance of Edom and Ishmael, Ishmael against Yaakov and Israel. And Esau's literally, again, without his parents' permission, and, and not only against their wishes, but he is a, a maruach, an affliction and bitterness of the spirit to his saintly, loving and forgiving parents intermarries not only with Canaan but with Mitzrayim what, what a difference from Yaakov because next week we'll start talking as we elaborate the distinction between these brothers which is writ large in the geopolitics of our day this entire century and listen for, for 3500 years before we went down to Mitzrayim and became a nation uh, we'll talk more we'll talk about the contrast of what Yaakov went through of how he like his father and his father's father went forward by going back to his Kedem in the, in the fullest Hebrew sense of the word the amount of self-restraint he showed as Laban exploited him humiliated him cheated him in the most intimate of ways as a close kinsman, as a guest, as as you know, in a loosely speaking, as a brother, as a nephew, cheated him of his wives, and and Yaakov worked and worked and worked twenty years. So, just to look ahead, we see that what Hashem told Rivka was, of course, being from Hashem was true as true could be. It was, as we say in English, true in spades. These are two radically different uh, beings and uh, Yitzhak went to went the very last mile to uh, give Esau a chance uh, it was too much uh, it was not going to happen maybe we'll talk more about that, that important moment in Parsha Toldot and uh, its implications are being played out uh, to this day but in any case certainly it emphasizes the key point of Pavdil uh, and winnowing and uh, the ideas of transparency and judgment and formal arrangements especially about your heritage because that goes to the heart of your identity and the roots that tie you to your past and to the branches that tie you to your descendants your children's children as we say so thank you I hope you enjoyed that um, I very much enjoyed uh, discussing it with you and I'll be happy to talk with you next week uh, have a beautiful Thanksgiving all of you Americans uh, the Puritans of course uh, borrowed from Israel many times not least in having a day of Thanksgiving Thanksgiving to the creator of all wor worlds they were very explicit about that Thanksgiving was to give thanks to God for sustaining them and uh one of our own Birkat Hamazon to this day. So have a beautiful week uh, and uh, I will see you next week. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, thank you. Uh, Alan and Eileen, shalom, Pua. Shalom, good night to everybody. Yes, see you tomorrow.